everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you're getting ready for a nice, relaxing Labor Day weekend. I know I am. It's been a long week. Um, welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. This is the place where hopefully you can get the best medical information anywhere at any time. Um, again, a disclaimer, this podcast does not provide specific medical advice. Please, for that, consult with your trusted healthcare advisor. Today's topic is going to be, in general, how to avoid medical errors in medicine. And I have to start with a sobering statistic. In North America, more people die every year from preventable accidents in hospitals than did in car crashes. So as amazing as modern medicine can be, and it's pretty amazing with some of the, all the scans that we can do and the surgeries and the medicines, but human error can always be a factor. And like anything else, it can be reduced through more precision management and other, um, hopefully, protocols in place. And that's what we're going to discuss. My guest today, Dr. Ron Donald Redelmeyer, is a uniquely trained doctor in the field of reducing medical errors. He has been called at his hospital, Sunnybrook. Uh, is it Sunnybrook or Sunnyside? Sunnybrook. Sunnybrook. So make sure I don't know why I was thinking Sunnybrook in Toronto, a really tremendous trauma hospital. But he's been called the connoisseur of medical era. Other doctors turn to him in tough cases to see what diagnosis may have been overlooked. Dr. Redelmeyer came to my attention after reading again one of my favorite authors, who I've had another uh, doctor on who's mentioned his book, Michael Lewis and his terrific and very interesting book, The Undoing Project. Now, this book is quite different than, Do than Michael Lewis's other well-known books, like The Big Short, you know, about the football player, or The Blind Side, I'm sorry, The Big Short about the uh, Wall Street catastrophe, or The Blind Side about the football player. You know, this book, interestingly enough, he wrote about the careers of two Israeli, I would call them like a statisticians, who changed the way we think about risk-taking in every field possible, and in particularly medicine. And the book has a chapter where both Amos Tversky, uh, who has since passed away, and Daniel Kahneman, who a lot of you may know, won the Nobel Prize in economics, worked with Dr. Redemeyer while he was training in um, Northern California at Stanford to glean as much possible medical situations where they thought there were wrong assumptions and that were leading to poor outcomes. Later on in his career, Dr. Redelmeyer returned to his native Canada to work in the largest trauma hospital in the country and oversee them to hopefully become less error prone. And uh, that's, again, really what this podcast is the, about. I mean, the smartest doctor in the room is about you getting the best outcome for your health. Dr. Redelmeyer is a professor of the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation and in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, a tremendous uh, academic institution. So I'm super pleased that he was able to make the time. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Donald Redelmeyer to the podcast. Well, thanks very much for, um, for, for, for like having me, Dean. Smartest doctor in the room. 
I guess that person wasn't available today, so you had to settle for me instead. No, no, you definitely rank in there. I know. I, I was going to tell the. I was going to. I should have put in the introduction that you're extremely humble, even from our first conversation. So, um, but that will shine through, you know, because I think patients can really tell the people who are the BS artists from the real deal, and that's what we really try to find here. I really try to find, you know, I when I when I pick and choose my guests. This is not a, a show that's pushing any agenda. We just want to get the best information out there. And obviously, this is my own personal journey. I get to talk to such interesting people. So the first question, the curveball I'm going to ask you is, how did Michael Lewis find you? And what was it like working with him? That 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 intrigues me. <laughs> um, he phoned me up one day, you know, while I was in the office. I, of course, did not believe it was Michael Lewis. So I uh -huh. asked a few skill testing questions and so forth. I thought it was just one of my colleagues setting up a prank. Okay. Uh, what's it like to be interviewed by the guy? Very, very different experience. All right. When Michael Lewis is working on a book, he's only working on a book. Right. He doesn't interview you for an hour, he interviews you for days. And wow. then he comes back a month later and interviews you for a few more days. Wow. And then he comes back afterwards. I mean, just a single-minded wow. devotion. Hmm. And then he asks, you know, your colleagues and all sorts of corroborating information. Mm -hmm. And, of course, going through that, you're scared to death. Right? <laughs> you want to you make sure you, you, you appear pretty good. Yeah, and, and you don't know whatever's going to happen, all right? Yeah. You can't refuse to talk with the media or else they think that you're truly corrupt and right. a scoundrel, but participating, you know, but the sword has two sides. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just love in his books the way he, uh, there was the other one on the COVID crisis, uh, I forgot what it was called, premonition or something. It was, it was just tremendous. And the people, the way he portrays, to me, especially the medical people, so fascinating because they're so, you get below the surface of their, you know, their medical knowledge, like their their emotions and all of this, which I find fascinating. All right, we're going to get into the, the key things. I know a lot of the listeners, I think, are going to really want to learn or see why it's important. There's actually a wonderful quote in The Undoing Project where it says, a hospital is not a place to treat the unwell, but a machine for coping with uncertainty. Whenever there is uncertainty, there has to be judgment. And whenever there's judgment, there's an opportunity for fallibility. I'm not sure if you said that or he said that. There is, it's a very interesting line. But I guess my question to you is, because I have to deal with this every day in my practice, and you know doctors deal with this every day in the hospitals, how should doctors best handle uncertainty? Well, it, I mean, it's everywhere. And so that, I mean, I think one of the most important thing is just to be humble all the time. You have got to keep your mind open to mistake, uh, uh, the opportunity for mistakes. As soon as you become confident, as soon as you become assured of yourself, although it's attractive, and sometimes by random chance, you turn out to be right. There is a big downside to that sort of, you know, strong element. Of Arrogance. Arrogance. I mean, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, you know, staying humble, it sounds like such a cliche. All right. And yet it's got to be reinforced again and again and again. It is an occupational hazard, particularly as soon as you get more seniority, some of the humility fades away. 
Let me ask you this, because I've, I've actually even mentioned this in other podcasts. I, I tend to see in my practice, I do immunology, infectious disease, and allergy, and I tend to see very complex cases. I, people have heard me say this. I'm like the 10th doctor. The patients have been to nine other doctors, the GI specialist, the rheumatologist, the ENT, you know, and then they land on me, and I'm trying to put all the pieces together. But some of the cases sometimes even honestly befuddle me. I'm, I'm hearing the story, and uh, it's extremely unclear. And you know, I make this analogy, uh, I don't always tell the patients this, that I sometimes when those really difficult cases, I feel like I've been thrown in the ocean and I don't know which way land is. You know, I, I'm like, right? And and this is what I'm bringing up. But one of the things I think as doctors we always try to do is have some some pillars of information that we can hold on to. And, and know some of it's from textbooks and articles. A lot of times it's from people, you know, honestly, in clinical practice that I really trust, who taught me and said, you know, this is usually pretty much, you know, something you can count on. And that's why I'm coming back to your question about uncertainty. So again, I'm in situations where I don't know, obviously, for sure, if it's going to work on a patient, whether even it's a good therapy, you know, because they may have some you know, some some reasons not to benefit from it. But I, I know this is such a general thing too, but again, I know this a little bit what you do. So you're saying really, I mean, I mean, do you believe still or when you're training your doctors like to, you know, have, I guess also to, I'm jumping around, but like, you know, uh, Atul Gawande had a great book called Checklist, you know, and uh, I've actually tried to do some of that in my office. And I think down the line, AI is going to help doctors, but it's almost like, if doctors really had checklists, and I know I was reading the book how you always keep notes, I do too, like when you're always writing things down, which is really smart. I mean, it's just, it was my habit from medical school. I feel like a medical scribe. But is that maybe a way, you know, as I said, to have some of this information, go through your lists, and then hopefully, you know, handle the uncertainty? I mean, I guess the last quote I'm going to throw in is that I think you said this. You said, doctors don't think statistically and and that, and that was it, that 80% don't think probabilities apply to their patients. So with all my rambling, maybe, maybe try to get some clarity to this. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> I know it was, I, I went on too much. <laughs> I think it's again, underscoring in your own practice with the amount of humility you express. I eat okay. at least when you go off course, you're not going to go that far off course before making a course correction. So that helps a lot. All right. right I right. think the checklists are okay as long as you don't obsess over them. All right? right. You know, there's this expression people either think or they obey, but they have a very hard time doing both things. So that when you just go through the checklist, often you just shut down other aspects of your mind. Right. That should be a backup. Actually, like what I would think is because I, I love I mean, that's what I've always loved about medicine and learning. Just, you know, I, you know, when I hear people's stories, things are going through my mind, you know, and that's and, and the most organized way, but it's a popping in. And then to maybe I guess what you're saying is have that checklist as a backdrop to say, OK, you know, all your ideas, does it meet some criteria if you're going to recommend to a patient? It's great if you can do both. Yeah, I know. Sometimes things are awfully rushed. There is a third strategy that I mean, I try to use for myself, and that is really to try to cultivate one good friend at work. All right, that you can bounce ideas off. That's a great idea. It's so hard 
to see the mistakes inside yourself, whereas it's so much easier to see them in the people That's that surround That's... you and vice versa. So that if you've got a trusted friend at work, not for some sort of institutional cronyism, but instead as a means of just checking yourself and vice versa, I think it can be really helpful for sort of uh, mitigating a lot of mistakes. Well, well I, I did something, I think a little bit beyond that. I, I married married the person. <laughs> she's in my practice. We went to well, that's good. That she's, can be very tricky. And she's smarter, <laughs> well, no, she's smarter than I am, but you know, uh, I'm the idea guy, but she'll like bring me back to earth. So, but that is a great thought. I mean, you know, I was, I was, uh, I think again on another podcast I was mentioning this. I was teaching the medical students uh, like two weeks ago the immunology section to the second year students, and I was saying how different times are. Like when I went to school, we went, when I went to school, of course I had notebooks and I was writing notes, and you were diligent, and then you had all these tests. And now when I go in to teach them, they have my full lecture ahead of time on video. So they, you know, I don't know if to sit there and lecture them. We just go through case reports and they have these little buzzers. So, you know, they, they put down the answers, but this was, uh, Don, this was the interesting thing I said the other day in the other podcast, they said, you know, back in the day, if, you know, we were caught speaking during a taking like quote or test, we'd get in trouble. So the students were all like saying, oh, do you think it's B? Do you think it's C? And I stopped them and I said, I have to tell you guys something. I said, I am not going to, you know, uh, you know, uh, condemn this. I'm, I'm going to encourage this. I said, you guys, I said, that's the one thing they didn't teach us. And when I went to medical school, you should be talking to your other students. That's who you're going to learn from and be not shy to say, hey, do you know this and whatever? Would you agree? <laughs> I agree totally. I think yeah. it's one of the artificial aspects of either medical school or board licensing exams. They should be open test. Mm. They should free access to the internet, and you should be able to go in there with the friend of your choice. So, I was right? say a team, right, right. Remember, right, there's that, it was that TV show where you get to, you call a friend, you know, to make, get the $25,000. I mean, what's a friend for? Um, okay. Uh, let me ask you about this, because this does also get to the the root of doctors thinking. And I, I think you're familiar with Dr. Jerome Groupman wrote a lot about this also. He's one of my my heroes in medicine. I've, I used, I loved a lot of his books and the writing in New Yorker. No, but he t talked about it, and the way doctors were trained was, and I'll try to explain this to the listeners, is what's called heuristics, which is essentially rules of thumb. And, you know, when I was a resident, again, in the hospital, you know, you were told to watch out. Obviously, if a guy came in that was a smoker in his 50s, high cholesterol, you know, did he meet, you know, these rules of thumb? Or was a, a female overweight and you know, postmenopausal and, you know, high levels of, you know, liver functions, you know, gallstones or something. But a lot of that's turned on its head. And, and I think a lot of doctors are now pointing out, and in you in particular too, that you can miss some key things by just using that. But my, my one question to you is this about heuristics. I want to ask you about that. And the other one is there was one famous line from Louis Pasteur that uh, my a cousin of mine who was in med school at Penn, the first like week of school, they said, uh, they were quoting Louis Pasteur and they said, in the fields of observation, chance favors the prepared mind. And I'll just tell you quickly my interpretation, what I was telling the students, and then I want to hear yours, that... To me, what that meant, because I, I thought about that question a lot. When I first heard it, I was like, what does this mean? But when I thought about it a lot, it was like, and we know in medicine, you know, especially when you're a student and learning things and you say, oh, come over here. 
there's, you know, one person that's got uh, this um, heart murmur. You should all hear it. You know, so everybody scuttles over, listens for a second, does not even sure what they hear. But to truly learn, you know, I used to buy those tapes where I'd hear the different murmurs, or I used to buy atlases. Now, obviously, we have the internet. I would buy book atlas books that had pictures of all the different rashes because it wasn't, I always tell people, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You tend to fall to your level of, you know, experience. So anyway, with all of that, how does heuristics, rules of thumb fit into, our, you know, avoiding medical errors? I mean, the shortcuts in reasoning are indispensable, not just when mm. playing chess, but also when practicing medicine. If a patient is short of breath, you're supposed to give them oxygen. All right, now that doesn't require a lot of pathophysiological reasoning, but 99% of the time, that is going to be the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, And so that the reason why these heuristics survive you know, is that, you know, they are so frequently correct rather than mistaken. The art of medicine is knowing when to sidestep them in selective circumstances. So I think heuristics is the only way to practice. Uh, so you do, you think that is important. I mean, like, let's say to have that fund of knowledge, because again, hopefully most of the time it will lead you to the right you know, and the common things. I mean, again, it's like another phrase we use in medicine. You know, you know, we tell the you know the the medical students close your eyes when you hear hoofbeats. Think horses, not zebras, because there will be zebras, but most of the time it's going to be a horse. <laughs> exactly. So it's a very good approximation. Just realize it's an approximation. Be willing to come back. You know, I'm in one or two days. Can I divert into an analogy? I hear, although this is going to be a bit long winded, and that's okay. that. Uh, you know, one sort of counterpart to these sort of uh, cognitive heuristics are visual illusions. I'm going to make two points here. All right. One example is that when you're driving down the highway on a hot summer's afternoon, it often looks like there's water on the pavement. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many times you drive up and down that highway, you cannot help but see the water. Right, not a function of inexperience, and yet if you act in accord with that impression and put your foot on the brakes, you get yourself into no end of problems. So it means that you teach yourself that your eyes can sometimes be mistaken. It does not mean that you drive with your eyes closed. All right, you just realize you bring to the driving task and some some internal knowledge about how your own vision is vulnerable to visual illusions. That's point number one. Mm -hmm. Second, and then I'll end this long-winded point. The reason why that visual illusion persists is that horizontal reflections on outdoor surfaces usually do mean water. And so the, the reason why sort of we fall prey to these mistakes is that in the vast majority of natural circumstances, they are giving us the right impression. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to the cognitive heuristics, the mistakes that we make, the gambler's fallacy, the sun cost, uh, uh, reasoning, the premature closure, the confirmation bias, all these pitfalls in reasoning persist. They're so beguiling because they're so often correct. Mm. Okay. What about, uh, as mentioned in the book, the misconceptions? Like I, I think you were working with Amos Tversky on this. He said, there are a lot of misconceptions in medicine, like, for example, like arthritis is associated with the weather. 
you know, uh, in, in my area of allergy, you know, they used to say allergy patients are better off going to out, live in Arizona <laughs> and get, you know, go off the, you know, and then later on, we find out it's better to be, grow up on a farm than in the city, you know, all these, you know, playing dirt where before they say, you know, be in a clean environment. But um, are these hard to dispel? And are there any dangerous misconceptions that... Um, I mean, I'll tell you one quick, I just thought of it right now on the spot. I'll tell you one quick dangerous misconception I constantly tell patients. I remember seeing you also a New England Journal, like a case report. It's a lot of times patients used to put like that Vicks stuff up their nose, uh, but some of it was like an oil, you know, and and they would breathe it in really deep. And then they'd get like, what you know, as you're familiar with, you'd get like one of those little oil slicks or particles in their lungs, you know, so it's like, don't ever, I don't know, this might be different. I don't want to bash, you know, Vicks or whatever, but sinus stuff, but you don't want to put an oil, sniff it down your nose. So I, I don't know. Is there any, any things that just come to your mind? I mean, again, I know you teach doctors or residents like that. You're like, you know, these are, you know, and the patients should watch out for these are, you know, big, Um, I'll I'll give you a classic one, yeah. uh, Dean, and that's the post hoc fallacy. Just because a patient feels better after a treatment does not mean the patient feels better because of the treatment. It does not necessarily indicate that that treatment ought to continue again and again and again. Just because the fever went away after the leeches does not mean right. the fever went away because of leeches, does not mean we should be giving leeches to the next bit. Just because the short, the sore throat got better after antibiotics does not mean it got better because of antibiotics, does not mean we should be prescribing antibiotics for all of these individuals with a viral sore throat. So that's the post hoc fallacy. Okay. Now, having said that, you know, I'm under no illusions of just how difficult it is to completely extinguish that pitfall in reasoning. And awareness might help you see through some of the more transparent examples, but I myself am still vulnerable, maybe not quite as vulnerable, but still prone to fallibility, even though I lecture on the post-talk fallacy. <laughs> okay. You know, one of the things that was mentioned in the book too, which I remember quite vividly because it applied to me, was it's something called your peak end rule, which just for the listeners, essentially is like the last impression is usually your lasting impression. And you gave the example of like where colonoscopies were done, where they were like for a few minutes at the end was made slightly more unpleasant, I guess the way they took the scope out and, you know, the groups that had the more pleasant exit were more likely to come back and have a colonoscopy and the ones that did not. Uh, and I'll just tell you quickly, my own unpleasant, funny story was about a year ago, I had my first colonoscopy quite delayed. I'm embarrassed about it, but I, you know, I finally did it. You know, my mom was, was really giving me a hard time. She's my doctor. She said, you better go get one. And I had it done and I'd had anesthesia before, you know, for others like, you know, orthopedic injuries, but I came out of the anesthesia very uncomfortable. I was very agitated. I don't know why that was, but I was, you know, I was, cause usually I come out very pleasant. I tell my wife how great she looks and all that. But this time I was like shaking and shoving and, you know, they were a little bit like on an assembly line. They had somebody else kind of lined up, you know, to get ready to put it in my spot. And, you know, they told me go get dressed and I was stumbling a little bit. And then they put me in the waiting room and they gave me a cookie and some juice. 
I still didn't feel so great until I said my wife drive me home. And I took some Tylenol and, and it passed, but it left me with a very, very bad impression along with the prep. <laughs> so, you know, that uh, was not going to be repeated for for sure a decade, <laughs> fortunately. So, but, but, you know, a lot of things we do in medicine are not pleasant. How, how do we make sure we don't, uh, or we improve the peak end rules? Is there uh, any kind of little trick that you have? But, you know, but there are a couple of, of examples of that. I'll give you one medical, yeah, sure. one non-medical. All right. Okay. You know, the medical ones, I'm only, I, I practice inside a hospital where we're often extremely careful and diligent at the time of arrival, right? When an mm. ET patient, and yeah. they were often very sloppy and careless at the time of departure when we are discharging a patient. And yet it's those, you know, final impressions that will really linger in the patient's mind and also propagate in terms of That's a good what, point, they, yeah. uh, what they tell their patients. So I think to, to, you know, put a lot more attention to sort of the way the story ends will improve a patient satisfaction. Even if you're running a clinic, I think also that that's very important, i.e., you know, the way you say farewell to a patient, every bit as important as the way you read them in the first place. Second point is that Hollywood knows this lesson far more than you or I, all right? Mm -hmm. when, when they have a movie, let's call it Barbie or Oppenheimer, they will test market multiple different endings, not necessarily beginnings, endings, in order to see which one has the most poignancy. That'll really propel word, uh, word of mouth, all right? So, so it's, again, all under the heading of last impressions can be lasting impressions. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit also about um, evidence-based medicine. And to me, it uh, in the U.S., it became a little bit of a a bane of my existence, and I'll, I'll, I'll some an example comes to my mind. And uh, I mean, obviously, I see there's the importance in it, so everybody just doesn't do what they want. But what I found here in the United States, evidence-based medicine began to be a little bit like a weapon used against the doctors. And I'll, I'll give you a, a classic example that I deal with. You know, I, I see also a lot of chronic sinus patients. And so when I would want to order a CAT scan, which I don't order a lot, you know, because most of the time clinically I can figure out what's going on with the patient. But when I'm really concerned, I order a CAT scan and typically, uh, you know, the insurance company to give the approval will, will uh, have me fill out some kind of form or they have a nurse come on and ask me several questions like how many courses of antibiotics has the patient been on, you know, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of these cases, honestly, I, I know that it's probably not important how many doses or courses of antibiotics they have. If they have nasal polyps that have been blocking them up, you know, I would prefer them not to be on antibiotics. And, uh, you know, so I have to come up with the stories to, to get it through so I can get this CAT scan. Um, I'm sure, you know, that might be just one outlier example, but... What, what do you think the place should be for evidence-based medicine in doctors' thinking? I mean, should we be held to that strictly, loosely? Obviously, you know, is there, you know, room for choice? Okay, uh, three responses there. 
one of the biggest upsides of evidence-based medicine is not when it's weaponized to save money to some sort of provider, but when it liberates medical students. They just love upstaging me with sort of by by uh, by citing the literature, and that's I think a healthy thing on both sides of the equation, right? Okay. Second thing is that. Another advantage of evidence-based medicine, although it might confirm already what works, it helps you put it into perspective so you don't exaggerate the effectiveness of any one of your treatments, all right? Mm -hmm. Like GLP-1 agonists are all very au courant these days, you know, like Ozempic for weight loss, and yet roughly it's a 10% weight loss. It weigh 300 pounds, it might... I take off 30 pounds. So it allows you mm. to appreciate what's going on without neglecting or exaggerating the effect sizes of what to expect. And I think the third thing that's useful about evidence-based medicine is when you're dealing with a really good doctor, all right, the difficulty is that they sometimes have a few crackpot ideas as well mixed in there. My analogy there is with Albert Einstein, who is, of course, very famous for, you know, astrophysics. And yet was a complete fool when it came to determining the lift of airplanes. And so just because you're strong in one domain does not mean that you're strong across the board. And I think mm. evidence-based medicine helps out in that. Interesting. What, what in your opinion... Uh, and you start to talk about being humble, which I think is super important. And I I'm totally agree with you there too. What, what, just out of curiosity, I have my little list here. What, what would be your characteristics if you were going to mold the future excellent doctor that's going to take care of you when you or I are sick later in life? What, what, would you, what are the characteristics that, you know, because, you know, people always tend to think, and I, I this was all tongue-in-cheek, naming the podcast The Smartest Doctor in the Room. It really, I should have called it the best doctor in the room because it doesn't really just mean about being smart. And, you know, we all know, we will both know, I'm sure people, super academic people who published articles and maybe the most expert in their field who I really wouldn't want taking care of me. So uh, I have a couple of my thoughts, but I'd like to hear yours first. What If you had to list a couple of characteristics, if you were going to mold your ideal doctor, you know, in, through your uh, residency, what would you hope they, they qualities they have? I'll list four off the top of my head. Okay. Um, number one, you know, there's no substitute to experience. Even though the chief medical resident at my hospital is really, really savvy, as smart as she is, she'll be even even better in about five years' time. All right. Good point. No mm -hmm. substitute to experience. Right. Point two is that I think for every systole there must be a diastole. If you want a doctor with years and years of experience, also ask them, do they see patients every day? Mm. I, I'm a better physician because I don't. You know, I'll do some blocks of service and then I'm off service, all right? And when I'm off service, that's my chance to reflect about what I did well, what I did not so well, mm -hmm. what I ought to do differently the next time, all right? So that's the point of lots of experience, but systole with diastole. Wait, let me ask one question on that. That's interesting because this came up in some of the podcasts I did with the two Harvard researchers. Uh, we were talking about older doctors versus younger doctors, but... So are you saying, because I, I see this two ways, because what they were saying, it was interesting that, like, for example, an older doctor, 
could have just as good results as a younger doctor if he's keeping up his volume. You know, meaning like if he's not, you know, just, you know, like being like you would say, being on service one month out of the year and not really seeing patients. But on the other hand, I got to tell you, too, it's interesting. Doctors that are not too overwhelmed, you know, with burden with patients, like seeing 60 a day that do have time, as you said, the diastole to, re to reflect and think about their cases, you know, I like to think like I do, then you come in stronger. So is, is that what you're really saying? You're saying sort of a balance of being active in patient care, but yet also having time to reflect and go to meetings or keep on learning. Exactly right. You nailed it, Dean, i.e. Time for reflection, but not too much time. Okay. Not too much time. You got to be back. You got to get back in the mud. You know. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Okay. Third attribute is continuity. All right. Is this doctor going to be there into the future for mm. for whatever happens? All right. Whereas a rapidly turning system, it's just not good. Yeah, right? that's bad. Yeah, that's what happens in a lot of clinics the these days. Final thing. I'll just be blunt about whether their personality you click with. All right. Yes, right. You know, I mean, no point putting round pegs into square holes and so yeah. forth. Whether, you know, they you genuinely sort of, you know, hit it off with them or not. Yeah. No, I thought those were great examples. My examples were demeanor, whether they're humble or arrogant. You know, look, each one works for some people. Some people like to, and not, I don't know many, but some people do like when the doctor's like the father figure or the old father figure bossing them around. But I, I tend to like somebody that's humble and, you know, you know, lets you express yourself. You know, when I say the word smart, I really twist it on being curious and inquisitive, you know, because as we all know, the medical literature and things keeps on changing. I, I, you know, I love studies, but I love sometimes even case reports even better because although quote, they're not double blinded and all that stuff. Some of you see the most interesting case and it can really resonate with you you know, when you see another case similar to it later on. And and the last thing I will say is this, though, because you didn't bring this up, but, I, but I, I want to, is decisiveness versus indecisiveness. And I always make the analogy, because I have some lawyers in my family, and they're very bright. And, you know, when they argue something, they'll go argue back and forth. They'll even, like, switch sides. You know, when they're, it's, like, it's like a punching team. Like, you know, it's like halfway through, they'll switch gloves. And, you know, so just punching, you know. And I always like to say, you know, doctors don't have the luxury of just keep on arguing. Oh, is it is it an embolus? Is it an infection? You know, it's like you have to make a decision. And and this was never so clear cut to me. It was like, when again, when I was in residency on call at night, you know, at three in the morning and somebody was coming in and we had to decide, was this person having a deep vein thrombosis or was it a cellulitis? You know, you know, and some some of my you know people that were over me at the time when I was like an intern couldn't make that decision, you know. So what, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, because to me, medicine is a kind of like a decision sport. I mean, that's that's kind of what we do. Yeah, I mean, more so for internal medicine, I've been a lot of surgical specialties. Mm -hmm. For sure, you know, a, a, a practitioner has to have the capacity to make decisions. And the only real way to have that is, is to have the fortitude for living with a decision when it goes wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that's one of the hardest things for, you know, um, for anybody. I, I, I'll have to be honest with you. I think... <laughs> it's kind of good in a way to 
it's been a lot more stressful for women, you know, but women today take on a lot more responsibility. There's obviously a lot more female doctors in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada. And the other thing is, which is interesting, you know, women's sports have been really um, had great, more great opportunities in the last several decades because of, you know, government regulations. And I have to tell you something. I found that, you know, I was a tennis player in college and high school. It, it, I can't explain it, but the, just the competition or whatever, it just something helped me in decision-making. And I just find that, um, and I'm sure it's the same if someone's a chess player or whatever it is too, but that to be in some type of competition or where you're under stress and you have to make a decision. Um, I don't know how you measure that, but um, I think it's something that we, and, and I think also doctors as they hopefully the ones who still like doing what they're doing, because that's what I do, is that you have to do that every every day, every week. It doesn't go away. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, this is the capacity to sort of, uh, you know, tolerate mistakes, yeah. open up your eyes to mistakes, and yet not abandon the practice of medicine. It is no fun to make a mistake. No, and it's, it's, it's the ability to go back to work the next day it's sort of the metaphor of the boxer yeah. fall down seven times pick yourself up eight times it is miserable to yeah. be in oncology and to sort of like a pediatric oncology screw up on some dose calculation the patient does not survive and you have to go back the next week because there are other patients uh, to look after Right. Very hard to really open your eyes to mistakes and to really learn from your mistakes. Oh, it's, it's banal to say, easy to give that recommendation to other people, hard to do it for yourself. That, that's where I think it's such a great point what you just said, super great point. Because I remember, and I, I want to talk about the last topic about medical culture, um, because, well, let's talk about that and then we'll talk about what I'm thinking about. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but for many years in the U.S., and I, I really don't know if it's changed because I don't really work in the hospital anymore. I'm mostly all outpatient. I just teach at the medical school. But I do remember when I trained in the mid-1980s, early 1990s, and it was the height of the AIDS epidemic, the medical culture at this academic hospital where I was was still, you know, you could be shamed for making errors. You know, I, and I always, because I end up telling my staff later on, you know, my non-medical staff and everything too, I tell them, I want to know if there's a problem. I will appreciate you bring it to my attention. Because what I used to see, unfortunately, was sometimes doctors would hide mistakes because they would be embarrassed by the other, you know, um, more experienced doctors. Like, how could you, you know, late at night, you, you almost killed the guy, you know, or... You know, um, why didn't you think of this? You know, da, da, da. You, with them having all the knowledge, but they weren't there at three in the morning. It was these 25, 26-year-old kids running running the house, you know? And I think things have changed with more supervision, but I don't know, what is your, I'm, I'm sure I, I know what you probably think, but how do we change this medical culture? Is it changing so that doctors are more, and nurses are more protected against, you know, fallibility. You know, I said the book I was going to always write was called No Room for Error. You know, you, you just felt like as a doctor, you just had, you know, you just had no, you know, not one iota inch for error. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly there's, there are changes in the climate of medicine, you know, but the amount of peer pressure and negativity is attenuated, all right? But the own sort of 
internal standards, they don't go away and maybe they'll never go away. And so it's the capacity to live with yourself afterwards. I think it's a feature of sort of uh, that contributes to a lot of burnout in colleagues as well. Yeah. And then again, you don't necessarily want to extinguish it. As painful as those emotions are, you know, they they survive because they are so useful under normal circumstances. Okay. So uh, I did ask this before on another guest too. I said, so how would you advise a family member to find the smartest doctor in the room if they had a particular medical problem? How would you go about, uh, you know, recommending somebody? All right, fine. First is that, Please define what the problem is, right? Do you want a plumber? Do you want an, an electrician? All right. Okay. Exactly is the matter going on here, right? Okay. The smartest person for allergy, not necessarily the smartest person for cardiology. All right. right. So we narrow it down a little bit. Number two is, you know, I mean, realize with a bit of humility that many of your problems don't require the smartest doctor in the room, all right? Okay. Maybe it's just a straightforward appendectomy or cataract extraction, mm -hmm. and any decent provider is more than sufficient, all right? And then the third thing is sort of meet with them and ask, you know, how many other patients sort of like you have they seen in the last year, all right? That's this idea of experience leading to expertise. So if you're going mm -hmm. for something exotic like an aortic aneurysm repair, or like, you know, a, a, a Whipple resection for suspected pancreatic cancer, right? How many patients like me have you seen in the last year? Do you, uh, are there problems uh, in the Canadian system with the, do you hear it? I don't know if it's so true, like with the getting access to elective care. I mean, is that an issue there or not as much as it's made out to be? You know, there's always a lot of hype here in the United States. You know, we don't want socialized medicine, even though we're kind of moving to, we've moved to some kind of medicine, which is crazy. It's like this hybrid of socialized medicine with heavy-handed managed care, which most patients don't like. Most people are paying more out of pocket and people are going bankrupt here in the United States because of medical bills, which I, I believe would never happen in Canada. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of a lot of these horror stories you hear north of the border here in Canada are just being weaponized by politicians or some other force. All right. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, there might have been wait lists for a, a, a coronary artery bypass surgery. Not anymore. No. Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there might have been wait lists for hip replacement surgery. Not anymore. But these days, there are going to be wait lists in... Like a in clinic. Well, there is here too. What, what yeah. did that change, would you say? They just got more... They have more providers or more hospitals? What, how was that? How did they deal with that? Or the population change? The system moves and adapts. It, it adapts. Yeah, there are providers. It doesn't... It's maybe not as nimble on its feet as the American system, but people aren't ostriches. They don't put their heads in the sand and so that the problems do get repaired and so but you know maybe not as quickly as one would wish do you feel like they also have a, a good primary care system i i feel like our system is kind of broken because what they did like everything else in life for access care we have a lot of urgent care centers so people seek you know when they have a medical problem obviously it's on a weekend late at night they go to this urgent care 
not really being followed by a primary doctor, not realizing that each time they go, like as you were saying earlier, going to a different doctor, a snapshot of the problem, this could all be the the harbinger of something that's building up. So is it is it um, is it do a lot more? Pretty much most Canadians have uh, primary care doctors that are like their go their point you know their point person in uh, getting through the system. I think that you know the, that is a current problem. But these days, I'd say ninety percent of Canadians have an individual they would call their family doctor. Mm-hmm. Right, ten percent do not, and it's a struggle to find them. So that there are shortfalls of that that will probably be repaired in another five or ten years. But at this moment, you know, but that's certainly a shortfall. I think a distinction, though, that is, you know, much more ongoing in Canada is the absence of, like, physician extenders, uh, nurse, mm, yeah. nurse practitioners, allied professionals who could offload a lot of family doctors. Mm. Let me ask you one last thing. So it was kind of really, I, I kind of jumped over this, and it's probably, you know, the one thing I'd really like to know. When you said... Um, in the interview with uh, Michael Lewis, that there was early in your career, and actually it was in high school, I think, there was an article your math teacher or something gave you that changed your thinking big time. And it was about uh, making judgment under uncertainty. So I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners and myself a little bit about a couple of things that, you know, like this whole idea of anchoring, availability, representativeness. Is there a way we can kind of make that zero. I'm like happy to be indulged. You're going to have to edit me down because I'm way too verbose here as well. But well, let me ask you though. Okay. Let, let me try to direct it. Cause it is, I, it's, it is very broad, but okay. I'll tell you how, uh, hopefully too, this helps the listeners. Like I'm in my office, I'm seeing a patient that has chronic fatigue syndrome and you know, I'm doing some testing, whatever too. They're positive for Epstein-Barr, like an acutely, uh, I'm thinking, okay, you know, infection, right? I have another patient later in the afternoon comes in. I have chronic fatigue. I don't feel well, you know? So I'm saying, well, oh God, I just diagnosed this patient with <laughs> Epstein-Barr. I better check that. Or or in the converse, I'll tell you this. I'm talking to a colleague the other day and say, oh, I had this patient who was having chronic fatigue for four months. Turned out she had hepatitis B. Didn't know about it. Do you know what I mean? So it's like all of this you know, like you said, you know, it's not like it came out of a list. I mean, because the list is enormous. So these are things that are like popping in my head. So I don't know. You know, again, this was kind of the work that, you know, Tversky and Kahneman were, you know, again, the, his whole idea of thinking fast and thinking slow, which I, I take to mean like, you know, going from your gut versus being systematic. Yeah, so with all your work with them... You know, what, like let's say with all your work with them, what was your takeaway about, or was there any, you know, about, you know, because again, you worked with two of these brilliant guys who their job was really risk management and dealing with misconceptions, right? And they, and then obviously you came back to Toronto to bring that that super wisdom <laughs> to your uh, medical colleagues. Don't be humble. <laughs> well, I mean, I really am a faded photocopy of the great ones, but but also an acolyte, i.e. I really believe that people judge the likelihood of an event 
by the ease at which examples spring to mind. They don't do anything rigorous like statistics in their brain. That's just okay. way too mathematical. All right. And so things that are salient, things that are recent, things that are visit, vivid, they just get overrepresented and we obsess over them way too much and we forget about much more banal and common things. Case in point, you know, each year in the United States, more people die from drowning than from fires, contrary to popular sentiments, right? Because mm. fires are dramatically portrayed scary, on the front right. of newspapers, right. whereas sort of a, a, a lake in the wilderness, not really all that striking an image. But because people underestimate the risks of drowning, they fail to take protective actions, wearing personal flotation devices. I think that's a real live example mm. of sort of the availability heuristic in motion. You said something also too, just to kind of wrap it up, but, and you made a great point about what the whole thing, like what you guys do in Canada, and we're starting to do in the United States here too, like where, you know, people should be, you know, mandated to wear bicycle helmets or mandated to wear a seatbelt. And like you said, I think you were quoted in the book as saying, you know, I, I don't mind being lightly regulated if it's going to save my life. You know, here in the United States where we got a lot of political factions, they don't want anybody telling them anything, but, I guess, you know, in medicine, we have doctors have felt under siege being very regulated. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on how much leeway doctors should have in in providing care to their patients? Like the difficulty with mandates is exactly as you say, they have to be crafted to perfection, lest there be loopholes. Mm -hmm. And they induce enormous amount of backlash, particularly inside independent-minded people, because there's a tension between freedom and safety. As for physicians... You know, I, I, I'm i all for like self-regulating professions, all right? I, I'm not all that heavily regulated by my licensing agency because I'm surrounded by really smart medical students and residents all day long. And I don't have to go far off the rails before I'm stripped of my privileges very, very quickly without any governmental official needing to get involved. Mm, interesting. Okay. Is there anything, the last thing you'd want to share with us, Dr. Redelmeyer? Anything that I didn't cover or, you know, you want to let people know about your work? Uh, that's a great uh, point. Um, let's just think here. Uh, well, or, any, or anything that they should read, anything that, that you know, any, any uh, you haven't written any books or is there any article that you maybe published that they might be interested, uh, you know, for the public? I've, I've got a bunch of articles, all right? So that if you go on PubMed, there's like hundreds of them there. But the one I'm most sort of infamous now is on um, COVID vaccine hesitancy and the risk of a traffic crash. Oh, wow. Got it. But this is this idea that people who don't follow public health guidelines might, uh, might also not always follow the rules of the road. We find about a uh, 50 to 70% increase in the risk of a crash when you can, when we compare those who um, are not vaccinated. Oh, wow. Those who are, I mean, it's sort of like a, a, a substantial increase in risk. Now the oh, amount wow. of backlash that that piece of research has generated 
has led to a lot of spicy emails. But if they want to hear more about the upside and the downside of Rettelmeyer as a crackpot, that's one example. Well, you're lucky you're not as well as known as Dr. Fauci because he knows to have a whole secret ser secret service <laughs> you know, protecting him, which is really sad in this day and age. But that, that's a really good article. I want, I'm going to get a hold of that myself. I want to you know, take a look at it. Well, Dr. Rettelmeyer, thank you so much for taking the time right before this long weekend. I, as I said, I'm a big fan. I was When I was reading the story about you, I was like, I have to talk to this guy. He sounds like the kind of doctor I wish trained me or was around. And uh, I know you're doing great work up there in Canada. I think they're really lucky, your students and residents. And uh, thank you again for taking the time. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.